Welcome back to episode 13. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Welcome back to another episode. We're so glad you're still joining in. Um, Hopefully you all have made it through our marathon of a podcast last week. Mm Mm-hmm. A little long. It was. It was. But it's helpful information. If you're considering going to law school or if you are going to law school and you want an idea of what to expect, um, it's. I think it's helpful for anybody considering it. I mean, my mom's listening and she's like, I'm not considering law school, but I still like it. Granted, my mom may be a little biased towards our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Just tiny, but yeah. hey. And I mean, I think it's helpful too. Even if you if you skip that episode because you're like, I don't want to go to law school, it can still be helpful to kind of have that perspective, especially if you have somebody in your life that is in law school, kind of get an idea of what they're going through so that you can be of support to them. Uh, because if you listen to that episode, then you know, and if you have someone in law school, then you know that it can be kind of a struggle throughout that whole process. So it can be helpful no matter who you are. Yeah, definitely. So hopefully you have tuned in and We keep seeing that I think we're getting new listeners um, that are starting at the very beginning and working their way through um, our little growing library of episodes. So that's exciting. Welcome. If this is the first episode you're tuning into, do we have any procedural matters? No, we don't. We are finally back with another crime-ish episode today. It's still kind of a special episode that Lindsay's going to share with us today, but we are back to learning about a specific case, which is exciting. Can we announce that by Monday you're going to be done? Yes, if, if you're listening to this, that means I'm officially done with my first year of law school, which is so, so Yay. crazy and so exciting. Um, so... Thank you all for letting me procrastinate all year with you by doing this (laughs) podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I appreciate it too. It's it's been fun. Hopefully, I don't think any of our cases have probably helped your studying, but maybe they do. They do. They do. Okay. The civil ones. You're you're kind of learning, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um,. I feel like I just got really loud. So sorry if I just blew out your eardrums. I got really loud in my headphones. Um, Okay, so this month, April, before we are are finished with April, we wanted to do an episode that is focusing on Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And so the month of April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And in particular, there is a day called Denim Day. And I don't think I had heard about it until a couple years ago. I think probably you turned me on to this. Yeah, yeah. I learned about it in college. It was not something that I knew beyond that. Um, just like being involved in organizations and, you know, knowing what other organizations do for Denim Day is really how I learned about it. But even that was not that long ago. No, I think it was 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. I know that that's, that seemed to me like I think I remember when we got more into it on social media and kind of were raising awareness about the truth behind it. You were the one who told me the truth behind it because I didn't even know the underlying case that, that gave rise to this. So, okay. So we're going to tell you about that case. Um, and so denim day for just a little bit of background, it was started in 1999. So it's been around for now, well, 24 years, uh, by peace over violence. 
And it's a way to practice solidarity and support survivors by renewing our commitment each year to exposing harmful behaviors and attitudes towards sexual violence. So the idea is Denim Day, which is going to be a couple days after we release this episode. It is going to be April 26th, uh, so Wednesday. Wear your denim, so start planning your outfits. And I'm going to tell you why, why it's called Denim Day. So we are going back across the pond to Italy. And we're going back to July 11th, 1992, in a small town called Muro Lucano. And I'm sorry if I butcher these names. Uh, But it's a small town about 60 miles from Naples. And there is an 18-year-old young woman who was on her first driving lesson on that day with her 45-year-old driving instructor. And he ended up driving her out to a secluded pathway that... It was, it was outside an inhabited spot, but it was still kind of out of the way, you know, took her out of town. He ended up forcing her to get out, and he threw her to the ground and slipped her blue jeans off by one leg and ended up raping her. And just to let you know, if you think it's weird, you're listening to this and you're, you know, wondering if you've missed the names of the individuals, because normally we tell you names, we tell you background. I probably spent a couple hours when I was researching this just trying to find names. The names, I cannot find them. News articles, like even stuff translated from Italy, I can't find them. So that's what we're just going to go with. You did not miss the names. I just, we can't find them. Uh, So the young woman ended up reporting the rape the following day after it happened. And Pretty much when the police went to talk to the driving instructor, he gave a similar set of facts, you know, said that they were on a driving lesson. He took her out of town. They got out of the car, but he claimed that it was consensual sex. And ultimately, the, he ended up being charged. They found that it was probably a sexual assault, so they had enough to charge him. And they charged him with, quote, carnal violence, private violence, sexual abduction, grievous bodily harm, and gross indecency. So not quite the same terminology that we're used to. No. So that is, that's what they had to charge him with. So on February 29th of 1996, the tribunal of Pamiza convicted him of gross indecency Or, essentially, they consider it indecent exposure in a public place. And he was acquitted on all other charges. And then what ended up happening is after he's only convicted of this indecent exposure, the young woman ended up appealing his conviction. Because she thought it was ridiculous. Yeah, that is ridiculous. That's not... No. No, no. So she appeals... Uh, And in 1998, the Court of Appeal of Potenza convicted him of all charges and sentenced him to two years and 10 months. And so obviously he's not happy about this because now he's convicted of everything. Mm -hmm. So he appeals to the Supreme Court and they threw out the conviction on February 10th of 1999 and ordered for him to have a completely new trial. 
Now, what ended up happening, though, is the Supreme Court found that the appellate court, which, granted, I don't know exactly their legal standards compared to ours, because obviously their laws are different, and it's yeah. not even the same laws that they have right now, because it was so long ago. Um, but the court ended up, the Supreme Court ended up throwing out the conviction because the they found that the appellate court had failed to conduct a, quote, adequate and rigorous scrutiny of the trustworthiness of the accusations and the circumstances that were inconsistent with rape. I'm so, what circumstance was inconsistent? This is the best part. The Supreme Court said that it would have been peculiar um, for the victim to undress in the middle of the day, even if she had consented. What? Yeah. So then, in 1999, essentially what ended up happening was the denim defense, or Jean's alibi, was born. So the the gentleman who had committed the, I guess gentleman is kind of a strong word. Um, yeah. The man who committed the rape. Yeah. Ended up using this denim defense. And the court even stated that, quote, jeans can't be removed easily. And certainly it is impossible to pull them off if the victim is fighting against her attacker with all her force. End quote. Okay. So, but that's not taking into consideration any other factors. No factors like being threatened or... Not, I mean, first of all, that just doesn't even make sense. But second of all, there are a lot of other factors that could right. that go into those situations that could have influenced where she had no other choice but to do that. Or a lot of sexual assault victims kind of go into preservation mode of we just need to get through this and we're exactly. not going to fight because we want to live. Exactly. And so this, when, when the court announced this, things went crazy. All of the women, right. They're saying if you're in jeans, you can't be raped because there's no way to take them off unless you take them off yourself. Mm -hmm. So ultimately the judge who actually issued the opinion started backpedaling and ended up staying. And there's a lot of quotes in this. Well, of course, seeing that a woman can't be raped if she wears jeans is stupid. It's ridiculous. That's not what our ruling meant. We merely found that the appellate court had not provided sufficient evidence to uphold the sentencing. There are holes in their argument, and it was our duty to point out the inconsistencies, end quote. And so he says this. They're try- he's trying to backpedal because... Of course, it's completely ludicrous that he's saying this. Yeah. But then, but then he says, and we're going to quote because these are just golden quotes. It should be noted that it is instinctive, especially for a young woman, to oppose with all of her strength the person who wants to rape her. And it is illogical to say that a young woman would passively submit to a rape, which is a grave violence for fear of undergoing some hypothetical and no more serious offenses to her physical safety. End quote. What? Yeah, so pretty much as if the victim isn't fighting, it's, you know, it's not rape. In 1999. 
but what about the fact that they're trying to survive and so that they would rather survive and undergo this horrible thing than take the risk of trying to fight it off in the moment and risk being killed exactly so basically what this is saying is like you're better off just fighting and dying fighting fighting and being killed yes and anything unless you have put all of your might forward it's not rape so ultimately the case ended up being remanded back to the court of appeal of naples who ultimately ended up acquitting the man so, so that for anyone who doesn't know what that means, to be mm-hmm. remanded means to be, give it back down to that previous court or yes. a lower court. And to say mm-hmm. that he's acquitted means that he essentially, nothing happened, right? Right. He, he, was got, just he got off. It's not, it, acquitted is not guilty. So one of the judges, there's a female judge who commented on this, and she is one of 10 female judges, and they have 410 male judges at the time. Wow. So she says pretty much the law is solidly in the hands of men is what she quoted to a newspaper. She was quoted by a newspaper, La Republica. And she says many of them think in a way that is completely detached from reality. So what happened was when all of this came out, the female lawmakers in the country did a strike and they went on a jean strike, meaning that they wore jeans even on, you know, to all of their businesses onto any government, you know, like the house floor, any type of official, usually typically a business outfit location. They went on a jean strike and wore jeans to parliament until the decision was changed. That is so awesome. Yeah. So that is how Denim Day was born. So to give you a little bit of background, I did a deep dive into the Italian sexual assault laws. And it's actually really fascinating. So the law that was in effect when this happened in 92 um, and then all the way through 1999 was actually originally enacted in 1936 by Mussolini. Oh. Your face was great. I wish everybody could see that. Yeah. So we're we're going on sexual assault laws from the 30s. And... In Italy, the traditional views that had gone into this law that was created was they believed that women were a gift from God for sexual intercourse and reproduction. So that's the mindset we're at. And yeah, and that's in, that's interesting, too, because when we had um, Catherine on the episode to talk mm-hmm. about, like, the social implications and, like, how society kind of right. interacts with the legal system, it's really interesting to think about how even here we can kind of see an example of the way that the views of the society mm-hmm. are reflected in the laws, which is really interesting because sometimes you have these laws that have been in place and nobody's questioned it for so long. Right. And then you end up in a case like this and you realize that just because of the way that these systems work, that law is controlling even now that it doesn't really have any bearing anymore because i mean in in society's values anyway right so mussolini was a fascist leader um and so under that regime essentially the their societal view on women was that women's only role was in the home because if you allowed your women to work they might think independently and they wouldn't have enough time to take care of the household And there were actually taxes for unjustified celibacy. So if a, essentially if a a married couple 
was childless or was not having sexual intercourse for some reason, you got taxed extra. Uh, Okay, there's a lot of issues with that. First Mm -hmm. of all, how do they even know that? Second of all, what about women who are unable to do so or women who don't want to? Yeah, that's not an option. And I don't think they, they considered that. Like it was an actual problem and the government was getting involved if you were married and didn't have kids. Wow. So the way that rape was looked at back then was it was considered a crime of honor um, against the victim's families. So it wasn't considered a direct crime against the person who was, you know, the victim of a sexual assault. It's the family. And it was considered a public morality and good customs issue. And back in the day, if the defendant or the person who committed the rape agreed to marry the victim or could prove that the victim had a lot of other sexual experiences previously, they could avoid punishment completely for the rape. Wow. Yeah. So it really does go back to the idea of like women as property. Yes, completely. So in 1970s is really, the 1970s is really when women started advocating for change and they wanted, the biggest thing that they were advocating for was so that women could be recognized as the injured party in a rape. Not the victim's family, the the person themselves, which it's crazy to think that that wasn't considered. But, yeah. 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 And, I mean, with how long ago this was, that really was not long enough ago for that to make any sense at right. all. So what ended up happening is there were a ton of very violent and brutal rapes through even the 1980s and the 1990s, other than the Denim Day case. There was a woman who was raped and beaten by 15 men. Um, they said youths, but still. And she was essentially blamed as, quote, the slut who asked for what she got uh, because she wore a mini skirt and she was pretty. And hmm. she ended up actually fleeing 700 miles from her hometown. She fled to Rome because she was getting publicly shamed as being a quote unquote slut. Wow. Yeah. Another man raped his two daughters repeatedly over 10 years and he was prosecuted. His only punishment was he was fined $8,000. Then we have another victim who ended up being subjected to essentially a public act of where she had to go and repent for her sins while the rapist sister and the rapist girlfriend was sitting there condemning condemning her as a whore. So somehow she had to publicly sit and repent for being raped. When it was not her fault at all. So she never should have had to do that. So there was no change in their law up until 1996. And in February of 96, Italy reclassified uh, the moral offense to a criminal felony and made it a crime against a person. And one court had this quote that I just thought was really good. And they said, in the crime of rape, the victim is treated as an object, not as a subject. A human being cannot, must not be degraded to the condition of being treated as a mere body. 
Rape reduces a human being to a body to be possessed, and it is precisely this which constitutes the criminality of the act. So that was, you know, it recognizes the shift from, you know, we now are having an injured person. Yeah. They also raised the minimum sentence from three years to five years. And there were, previously there was a distinction between penetration and other types of sexual acts, but they um, got rid of that distinction and there's now one punishment for all. But there is also, there, there can be aggravating circumstances and it also called for the automatic prosecution based on the complaint of a victim. So now there's no option. It has to be prosecuted. Good. And the only thing though is that we have uh, consent is still open to interpretation. And so the women who are advocating and the, the people who are advocating for these changes still felt that the way the laws defined consent, that it wasn't, it wasn't always helpful to the victim. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, you know, as clear as some of our laws where consent is more clearly defined. Yeah. Because there's a difference, right, between, like, consent being, like, was consent given versus, like, did this person, or do, are they, like, arbitrarily claiming that consent was given? Like, it kind of right. depends on, like, who is going to be, you know, whose version of facts are we going to have to trust here? Right. So there are other instances of essentially individuals claiming the denim defense. So in 2001, uh, a man was charged with the sexual assaults of his former wife, and he claimed consensual sex because she was wearing blue jeans. And the defendant ended up appealing to the Supreme Court, um, and essentially what they found was that the fear of further consequences, in addition to the slaps from her former husband that had already been inflicted on her, uh, facilitated the removal of her jeans. And, and I'm like, why Why are we considering this still? Yeah. In 2001. Yeah. They ultimately ended up confirming his convictions um, and acknowledged that rape should be established regardless of the victim's active resistance. So we're, we're getting some progress. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it doesn't put the, the weight on the victim, right? Because then it's like, what steps did you take to right. either save yourself or prevent this from happening? Like, that's that's the type of situation that it puts a victim in, which it seems like it's just you know, to anybody who isn't like intimately familiar with like the way that the laws are phrased. It may not seem like that big of a deal, but it is because what this does is it puts a, a, a potential victim in a position to think like, well, I might actually not be able to get any kind of justice or protection if I fight for myself, because that's the way that this phrasing is. That's what the phrasing does. Right. So in 2006, uh, another man tried using it, and he appealed his sexual assault conviction. Um, And there was a young woman who was with a friend at a coffee shop uh, where the man worked. He ended up requesting her to help him and said, like, hey, I need your help getting something off of the second floor to the upper flat. We need to, oh, that's what it was. We need to deliver drinks. So I need your help carrying them upstairs. And so she went up with him on the way back. 
he stopped the elevator and drug her into a landing and raped her. And so she was initially in shock. She ultimately ended up resisting and then crying. And after the sexual assault, she returned down to the coffee shop where her friend was and looked distraught. And ultimately, it was able to be confirmed due to blood stains in her underwear. So she had some sort of physical proof. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court in the appeal ended up confirming the conviction because they found that the credibility of a rape victim cannot be invalidated by the fact that she was wearing jeans at the time of the rape, since the fear of further consequences could have determined the possibility to remove the jeans more easily. So finally, they're starting to realize that fear can play a role, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and they said... Ultimately, they think that because there was a friend that was there to back up her story and say, yeah, when she, you know, when she went up, she was fine. When she came down, she was distraught. You know, she wasn't herself. We had to rush out of the coffee shop. They think that maybe played a role in the Supreme Court's decision, ultimately, because there was another witness to back her up. But overall, it's considered a win because the the court is beginning to develop, um, you know, the, the thought that it could be fear. So mm-hmm. they, they took it as, they took the opinion as a win. Um, again, in June of, June 10th of 28, the Supreme Court of Italy affirmed one of their lower court of appeals rulings, sentencing a defendant to one year imprisonment for repeatedly sexually assaulting the 16-year-old daughter of his girlfriend. Which, just right there, we are a one year for repeat sexual assault. Yeah. Mm-mm. So, the defendant had tried claiming that the girl lied about the facts. Um, he claimed that the 16-year-old invited him home to their house for lunch, and she sat next to him when they were watching TV. So, she invited it. Uh, okay. I don't know. No, 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 no. Right. No. I mean, there's a big difference between inviting, so- even if even if that is true, even if she did invite him to come home and she did sit next to him, that does not consent to anything beyond no. literally exactly that. Right. But that's what he was claiming. Then he claimed that because she was wearing tight blue jeans at the time, there was absolutely no way he could have put his hand down her pants without her consent. The the thing to me that is just so shocking about these arguments is that it really, if if anything, it's highlighting how egregious what they did is because right. it highlights the added steps that they went through at any point, which they yes. could have decided not to do that. Like they right. were met with a physical resistance and they still continued like that. Mm-hmm. That is what is just so partially what is so appalling about this argument. Right. So ultimately, the Supreme Court affirmed the conviction um, and found that the fact that he was wearing blue jeans was not an impediment to the sexual assault. And they said that jeans, blue jeans cannot be compared to a chastity belt. So finally, there's progress where it is pretty clear by 2008, the blue jean defense is gone. It's just Good. still considering crazy. it was two thousand and eight. It's crazy that to me ago. that it took nine years, yeah, for the courts to actually figure this out, mm-hmm. and repeated opinions. 
which is just mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, and this kind of just goes back to the way that the law works and the way that these cases create a precedent, is that you see it's it's like change happens so incrementally because and it doesn't need to but when you can see here is like okay in this case we had an adam circum an added mm-hmm. circumstance which was the friend that was able to to confirm the story and then right. so it wasn't necessary for them to really address the genes argument as much because they had this other thing to rest upon right. but finally you have a case here that made the big change because there was nothing else they could re- rest on but i mean that's it shouldn't have to get to that point, right? It shouldn't no. be, let's address every other possible factor before we make this controversial, you know, quote unquote, controversial opinion. And I think that that's such a good point that people don't understand. You know, you have one case law that gives you like one piece of the puzzle and then or a Lego and then you get the next one and they keep building on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, I mean, it's a great great example of how our system works unless yeah. it's something that you know legislatures are going to codify yeah um, it could so- be interesting to do an episode on so if anyone's interested maybe we could do a mini episode so let us know if that sounds like something interesting mm-hmm. to you just kind of explaining the way that this works because i think even now beyond this case there's a lot of talk of cases in the news and the supreme court making decisions overruling certain cases and it can be very confusing as to right. what that means exactly. So if you're interested in an episode kind of explaining that process and the way that these cases become controlling decisions, then let right. us know. Send us a message and we might make an episode about it. I mean, if anybody's interested, we a good example is the case that overturned Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Because it's not... It, it's when you actually read it and it's, I think what, like 100 pages, I think? It's like 108 That's pages or something like that. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't completely overrule it, but it's enough to push it back to the states and that's the problem exactly. but we could do that's a good example we could do an episode so if you guys are interested let us know yeah all right so by 2008 right we got through Italy is done with the denim defense um, and so I figured we could go back to the United States and talk about some of our cases where people have claimed that clothing made a difference So, in 1977, in Wisconsin, uh, a judge considered the victim's clothing in a rape case and ended up only convicting the man who had uh, raped this woman to probation because the judge called out women for teasing men and he wanted a restoration of modesty in the dress. Um, And he specifically stated... Quote, whether women like it or not, they're sex objects. Are we supposed to take an impressionable person of 15 or 16 years of age and punish that person severely because they react to it normally? End quote. Normally? There's just so much with that statement. Yeah. Yeah, there is. It's essentially the boys will be boys. It is. It is. Which, I mean, we still hear it today. Yeah, which again is it's like, again, they're putting the burden on the women or the potential victims because women are not the only victims. But it's putting the the pressure on the potential victims to not become victims instead of putting it on the perpetrators or the would-be perpetrators to not do that. 
Yeah. Uh, in 1978, a Montana court uh, noted that a defendant, a man, had testified that the sexual conduct or contact, the rape, was encouraged because the victim was the way she dressed and her behavior uh, when he, she came over to babysit his kids. So there's mm. a big age gap. Well, yeah, and that's not even being taken into consideration in no. these cases. They're not looking at the outside factors that may create an added pressure that really scares the person into doing what this other person's forcing them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1988, a Georgia man was convicted of rape, and he appealed the trial court's denial of the evidence um, on the fact or, you know, accounting for the woman's sexually suggested clothing. One of the famous cases that I found was 1991, the William Kennedy Smith sexual assault trial. Um, and he was a physician and also a member of the Kennedy family. And so it was, it was very publicized. But he met this woman at a nightclub and ended up going back to his house. After the sexual encounter, the woman, you know, reported it as rape and... He said it was consensual. Um, There was a friend that was there who said that the woman was physically shaking and was disheveled when she came out and ended up saying that she had been raped. And the defense wanted to introduce the victim's bra into evidence because it was lace and decorated with artificial pearls. Um, and the defense argued that that bra was the single most important evidence because the lack of damage to the bra showed that it had been consensual. Which, I mean, again, it's not taking into consideration any other fact. I mean, like that's just, just, that goes back to this view of women as objects, I think, in these opinions, because Mm -hmm. it's this idea that like, Oh, clearly she, you know, if a woman is an object, then if this happens to her, she's not going to do anything. And so therefore there would be all this evidence of some kind of force or added force, but they're not taking into consideration that that's not reality. Right. And again, there's all of these factors that would have lent someone to complying to something out of fear of death or worse, worse injury. Right. So the judge actually found that the bra was admissible, meaning that it could be brought in in front of the jury. And the reason the judge allowed it in was to counter the victim's testimony that she had been tackled, pinned down, and raped. Um, And so it was literally used to show, well, it couldn't have been that aggressive because there's no damage to the bra. So... Ultimately, the prosecutor was fighting against this and, you know, he didn't want the the bra admitted into evidence. And ultimately, he the argument that the prosecutor made was that it was prejudicial to the jury or something that, you know, could sway the jury. And his argument was that uh, the jury could improperly imply that someone who buys their underwear at Victoria's Secret can't be a victim of sexual battery or sexual assault. Which I think is a fair point. Because. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see his argument in the fact that this is essentially applying that you are consenting if you are wearing lingerie. 
Yes. So, I mean, I get it. I see the concern. Mm -hmm. Um, But the judge ultimately allowed it in. And so the jury got to consider what she was wearing. So, in 1995, um, or by 1995, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida were the only states that have rape shield statutes that specifically address the victim's dress as evidence. Um, Georgia and Alabama included the victim's, quote, mode of dress under the definition of past sexual conduct um, and found that it's generally inadmissible. So typically, and for those of you who aren't aware, in sexual assault cases, there has always been an argument of, do we bring in the victim's past sexual sexual history, right? Like, is there a lot of previous sexual partners? Um, or is this somebody who's, you know, never had sex? And for a while, the jury got to consider that, which is just... Ridiculous. Um... And so Georgia, though, does have an exception, and they will allow the defense to introduce evidence if it supports an inference that the accused could have reasonably believed that the complaining witness consented to the conduct. Just purely Um, by what they were wearing, which is ludicrous. Yeah. So, I mean, the belief has to be reasonable, Um, but the presiding judge of the trial is the one who determines if it's reasonable. There's no, mm-hmm. no common definition. Um, and so different lawmakers and people who have been involved in, you know, advocating for sexual assault awareness and these type of laws find it problematic because you're really going to get, or you have the potential to get a different definition of reasonableness mm-hmm. depending on the judge. Yeah. So, um, it's really the judge's discretion. Um, and I mean, Alabama has a similar, there is also an exception. Um, if it finds that the dress directly involved the participation of the accused, um, but it's unclear what exactly that means. It so, kind of sounds like a similar yeah. argument, right? Like if it was difficult to take off. Pretty much. So, Florida is the only other state, um, and it mandates that evidence presented for the purpose of showing that the manner of dress incited the sexual battery should not be admitted into evidence, Um, but it permits it if it's used to show consent. So, California, we recently had... Um, a change. We have evidence code section um, 1103, which does discuss the admissibility of a victim's manner of dress. And prior, there was an amendment recently in 2021, and it was actually called the Denim Act, Denim Day Act of 2021. And the modifications was it just, uh, we already in California generally wouldn't allow a victim's clothing to come in, but it specifically puts it in a statute that a manner of dress before, during, or after the commission of the offense is not admissible to prove consent. Um, And so the assembly member, Sabrina Cervantes, was the one who really spearheaded this. And 
She's quoted saying that this law makes the principle behind Denim Day a reality in California by guaranteeing that clothing can never, ever provide consent. So in California, we're good. Other states are starting to, you know, catch up. However, in other countries, in August of 2022, an India judge dismissed a complaint because of the woman's clothing. It was considered provocative. Um, and so there are still other countries out there that are still having issues and finding that a woman's clothing is enough to, to prove consent. Which again goes back to that idea that you really can see that as much as somebody may think like, oh, the law does not include me it doesn't apply to me but it is an accurate reflection a lot of the time of the societal belief so when you see these laws still in place mm -hmm. in other countries you see the the inherent belief of some of these um, right. of the society in that area reflected in those laws yeah which is sad i mean i know there's individuals all across the world advocating for this change still um and they're they're trying really hard but I mean, we, we sadly still have it, um, you know, while we're doing this episode, it's still happening in other countries. So kind of that's your basis of what Denim Day is. It's the case, you know, that, that caused Denim Day to start, um, and a background of how it's affecting other states and other countries still, how the laws are still affecting it. So what we want you guys to do is participate with us in Denim Day. Um, it's on Wednesday, like we said. What you do is you wear your denim. And you'll, if you're active on social media, you've probably seen our Denim Day posts. We're going to start posting it. We'll post ours. Um, and use the, you can tag us in your pictures. We would love to see the tags. Um, hashtag denim day is really popular. There's a ton of places that do it. You can also hashtag a place in the courtroom so we can definitely make sure we see it, but we are excited to see your denim on Wednesday. Yeah. And hopefully encourage your friends to do it. Tell your workplace about it. Share this episode with them, not just because we love when you share our episodes, but more importantly, because it's important to get the background for this too. There's a lot of I'm so happy that social media has been able to really allow a lot of these movements to take off in many ways and raise awareness for things that maybe otherwise some people would not have known about. But mm -hmm. it is equally, if not more important, that we actually look at the reason for these days. It's not enough to just say, hey, it's you know an awareness day of, for whatever it is, but to actually take the time to learn about the backstory. Because when you learn about the backstory, you understand the impact that this type of advocacy can have and the type of change that it can have. But you do have to have that background knowledge. So share that information. Use this as inspiration to look into other things that you may be, you know, maybe there's some social media campaign that tells you to post a hashtag or tells you to post something else. Look into those things because the more that you understand, the more that you'll, able, you'll be able to help. Yep. So... If you don't know already, you can uh, find us on Facebook at A Place in the Courtroom Podcast. So you can tag us there. You can tag us on Instagram at A Place in the Courtroom. Uh, no podcast at the end. Nope. You can visit our website at www.aplaceinthecourtroompodcast.com 
or you can email us at a place in the courtroom at gmail.com. Um, if you guys have case ideas or ideas for a fun episode, uh, you know, email us, tag us in social media, send us a message. We got a message today from somebody asking for a topic. Um, so we've added it to our list. So we are totally open to suggestions. We have some really fun stuff coming up for month of May. So you guys will get that next week, uh, which I'm excited about. But yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Anything well, thanks else? for tuning in for another episode. This was our, actually, this is our last episode recording virtually ah, away yes. from each other. The funny thing I is, know. Lindsay and I have not even seen each other no. in real life since we started the podcast. We have not. We recorded we... the trailer in the same room, but that was it. Yeah. Even that, we weren't even in the we same room. We were in adjoining offices. Place. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, starting... Well, the next one, since when, if we have special guests, we'll still record on here. But if not, we'll be in the same room. Um, and so if that audio works better, let us know. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to figure out our audio issues. We're doing an experiment. So if our audio sucks right now, please tell us. Yeah. Um, but we are running an experiment. We're still trying to figure it out for you guys. Um, but yeah, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you in the next episode. All right. Bye.